return is very close And so you better be believing that our God is an awesome God Our God is an awesome God Welcome to a service at Holy Life Tabernacle in Brookings, South Dakota. We are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Now let's go into the sanctuary and here's today's message. Amen, amen. Did you have a good week? Yes, hallelujah. Father, we love you so much. Mm, Thank you for this day to come to the house of the Lord, to worship you, to enjoy your presence, Lord. And we're asking for you, Holy Spirit, for your spirit of wisdom and revelation to flow even this morning. Thank you, Lord. Make sure our hearts are open and free. And we just want you to know how much we love you and how welcoming we are to your Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we're titling this morning, It May Be That the Lord Will Work For Us. A quote out of 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. There's this wonderful story in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel that I want to meditate on today. You know, the Bible's such an honest book. Our God's such a limitless God. Always working with us, in spite of us, doing these amazing, marvelous, marvelous things. And there's a few characters in the Bible that kind of always stand out, right? All that So much faith, so much integrity, so much um, wisdom, character, that you just think, wow, how did they do it? You want to kind of study them in depth and figure out what were they thinking? How did they accomplish what they did and have God show up like he did? Because he wants to show up in your and my life the same way, right? Hallelujah. First Chronicles 8:40, the New Living Testament, talks a little bit about um, now Jonathan was a son, the son of King Saul, the very first king uh, of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and all of the descendants of Benjamin were famous for being mighty warriors and expert archers. It was like it was in their genes. Chances are you all have something in your genes that makes you amazing, has a skill or an ability that maybe somebody else doesn't have. But this is something about Jonathan. He was a mighty warrior. He was an expert archer. When he, uh, when he died with his father, at the uh, David made a tribute to him in uh, 1 Samuel 1.23, describing him as being faster. Whoops, am I going too quick here? He describes him as being faster than an eagle, stronger than a lion. Now, in comparing Saul and Jonathan, though, this is about where it stops, because they are completely different men. Saul feared the people. Jonathan feared God. Saul was ruled by fear. Jonathan, a man of faith. Saul was extremely insecure as a leader. But Jonathan showed deep trust in his God and immense loyalty to God, to his nation, to his father, to the end, and to his friend David. Now, in regards to David, Saul was jealous, saw David as a threat. 
Jonathan perceived the greatness in David, and I believe that's what drew them to each other. Isn't that kind of fun in the body of Christ when you can sense the greatness in one another and there's this bonding and this fellowship that we can have in the spirit because of that. And in regards to David and Jonathan, even when it was obvious that the throne was going to be going to David, because Jonathan was first in line. He was supposed to be the next king. But it became very obvious that God had chosen David. Even then, Jonathan's heart stayed pure and clean, and he still stayed loyal to him. Saul was convinced it was always about numbers. We can only win if we got a whole lot of people on our side and in our army. But Jonathan's basic foundation thought, belief, was it's all about the presence of God. It's not about how many people I have on my side. It's whether I have the presence and the power of God. Now, both men were men of action. If you recall, Saul acted very rashly out of anxiety because his troops were leaving him. So he ended up offering this sacrifice. The story is in 1 Samuel 13, where Samuel, well, we're going to get to that a little bit, so I've got to save my time here. Um, he, wasn't, he was not qualified to offer the sacrifice. It was a no-no. He wasn't supposed to be doing this. But he wanted to appease the people. He felt this anxiety. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. My men are forsaking me. Out of fear and unbelief. And it was extreme disobedience. But Jonathan. Jonathan also was a man of action. He didn't just sit there. He was a man of action. But he operated out of faith. So let's go ahead and turn now then to 1 Samuel 13. And we're going to. We're going to read quite a few verses, but I kind of want you to see this story. It's so exciting. It just excites me a lot. Okay, so here it is. Saul was 30 years old when he became the king. He reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash, and 1,000 of them were with Jonathan. So he takes 2,000, he gives Jonathan 1,000. Jonathan is at Gibeah, and uh, Saul right now is at Michmash. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all of Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, please notice that Saul is taking credit right here for the battle that Jonathan won. All right, let's go on. Verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots. Now, we're talking now about the Philistines. 3,000 chariots. 6,000 charioteers, soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Make a guess. I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands. And charioteers, the Philistines were known for their work with metal. It'll explain something else later with the swords. Um, they went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw... That their situation was critical, like hopeless. 
and that their army was hard-pressed, they went and hid. We're talking about most of the army now of the Israelites, God's people, the ones in covenant with the eternal God. They were hiding in caves and thickets among the rocks and in the pits and in the cisterns. Some Hebrews, look at this, even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Remember, there were their two tribes that didn't even want to go through all the battle of the promised land. Let's just stay here on the other side of the Jordan. So some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Not to mention those who are hiding, those who have left, crossed the Jordan, where the tribes of Gad and Gilead live. Now, this scene, what follows, I'm just going to save a little time here. What follows here is where Samuel told Saul, I'm coming in seven days. I will offer the sacrifice. It was very necessary for a sacrifice to be offered to get the men spiritually ready for battle. Goodness, that's something maybe we should keep in mind, huh? (laughs) We want to be ready for the battle. We always want to be real aware of this covenant we have with our almighty God. And Saul waited the seven days. He waited seven days. A little anxious because he saw all his men deserting him. But when seven days was up and Samuel was not there, he freaked out. Stressed, I'm sure, because his men were leaving him, deserting him. And he's watching. He sees. I mean, we got to be careful, friends. We want to see with our eyes, but we got to learn to see with our spirit way before our physical eyes. But Because he was so consumed with the, my men are leaving. Look at all those chariots. Look at all those soldiers. Ah, look at all their swords. Because there were hardly any swords in Israel. In fact, there were two. Just so you know, only Saul and Jonathan had swords. His men, were leave, their, his men were leaving by the hundreds, and now his spiritual leader has not shown up. So he does the unthinkable, the unlawful. And of course, Saul is full of excuses. He says, it's the people's fault. They, they were leaving me. They were deserting me. They were scattering. What was I supposed to do? And then he dared to turn to Samuel to his face and say, it's your fault. You were supposed to be there. You told me you'd be here and you weren't. So again, it's so easy to blame somebody else, isn't it? But um, it, didn't, it didn't work. In fact, the King James, uh, the phrase is, I forced myself. Listen, Jesus said my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We should not be having to force ourself to do anything. Yes, we'll be compelled by the Holy Spirit, but that we don't want to ever force ourselves to do something um, evil. Never, never, never. Um, then the word from the Lord was for Samuel 13, 14. We're going to skip over there. Samuel says to Saul, your kingdom shall not continue. It's over. It's over, Saul. You've had chance after chance after chance, and you've disobeyed the word of the Lord. And he explains that the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. So this is the setup. This is the background for our exciting story that we're going to go into now. But we just need a little bit more background. So let's go on then to verse 15 if we can. 
Is this story new to some of you? I guess we all need a little refreshment, but hopefully I'm not going too fast. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. Notice it's very important to Saul, but, I mean, he saw them all leaving, like, I better figure out what I got to work with, right? So he numbers them, and they're down to 600. How many did he start with? 3,000. And we're down to 600. The Philistines haven't gone home. They're still in the thousands and thousands. Verse 16, Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying at Gibeah in Benjamin while the Philistines camped now at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboian facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in all of the land of Israel because the Philistines had said otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all of Israel had to go down. They always, just to, just to sharpen their plow points, their mattocks, their axes, their sickles, the only blacksmiths in the world were with the Philistines. So they were forced to go to the enemy just to sharpen their, their plow points, their mattocks, their axes. And I'm sure the, if I was a Philistine, I'd make sure they weren't too sharp. <laughs> right? Because, ah, then they would have a weapon. And the whole point was to leave them weaponless. Hallelujah. Um, so, verse... Can we jump down to verse 22? Okay, so... On the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. That might be why they were running away, right? They felt like they had no, no weapon. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had a sword. Now, a detachment of the Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. So we're going to go on to chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on that other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were the 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. That means he was acting as the priest. He happened to be the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. So just leave this up on the screen here. I'm just going to talk about a couple things. First thing, the King James first phrase is actually, now it happened one day. I just love that because, friends, we never know when we wake up what big God opportunity is just going to be happening in that day. We just have got to be ready always for God to show up because he wants to do amazing things through you and through me. Hallelujah. Very normal, very normal kind of days. That's when God works. (laughs) Okay, second thing, um, notice who Saul is hanging out with. Maybe you recognize a few of these names. Like Eli. You're, you're familiar with Eli? The priest who was kind of large, 
the Bible says, who honored his sons above the Lord. Why? Because they brought these juicy pieces of meat, right? I'm guessing that might be why Eli got a little large. Here's another name, Ichabod. You remember that name? Or even Phineas. Phineas is the, one of the wicked sons of Eli. When Phineas's wife, well, what happened was Phineas and the brother, what was his name, Eliphaz? I might have the wrong name. But the two brothers died in battle, the very same battle that the ark was taken. And the ark was everything to the people of Israel. It symbolized the presence, the power of God. And then the, the Philistines or whoever was in that battle that day stole the ark And the woman automatically went into labor in shock. She named her son Ichabod. Does anybody know what it means? The glory has departed. So please notice who Saul's hanging out with. I mean, these names are very significant. It is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because Saul was just told your kingdom is over. It's done. And... Here's Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. One more tiny thing here is the significance of the pomegranate tree. You know, we can just walk over some of these things if we're not aware. I guess um, the pomegranate tree in Moses' day, the Lord gave him instructions for the priest's garment to be pomegranate tinkling bell. Pomegranate tinkling bell. Pomegranate, it was, it was a big symbol for the prosperity and the blessing and the glory of the promised land. Later, Solomon actually uses it. Um, he engraved it all over in the new temple as well. When the spies came back uh, from the promised land, mem- we all know, remember that big picture of the big branch with all the grapes. Well, they also came back with pomegranates and figs. So what we see here is Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree. So he's sitting under the symbol of the prosperity, the fruitfulness, the blessing of God. But he's sitting. He's doing nothing. He's sulking, actually. He's very much afraid. So friends, I just have to ask you, you are sitting under the blessing. You are sitting under the prosperity, the the glory, the magnificence, all these promises of God. Hopefully you're not sulking. Hopefully. I mean, I know a large majority of Christians across the nation right now still are stuck in disappointment and, and grief. And, you know, we see the junk in the world. It is. It's disappointing. It, it can really grieve you, but we can't let that take a hold of our spirits, friends. We have got to be alive with the life of God. We've got to stand up and, like Johnson's, we're going to see, that who gets up and does something about it. All right, verse 4. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost now, there was a cliff. A cliff. I mean, we're not talking about a tiny little mound. We're not talking about even a hill. We're talking about a very sharp cliff. They actually named them. One was Boaz and the other was Sina. And just so you know, one means slippery and one means thorny. 
So yes, the Lord showed him this strategic spot, but it wasn't easy. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south towards Geba. One of the translations actually calls these sharp rocks. So yes, when God gives you one of those opportunities, I'm not saying it's just going to be easy peasy. No, it might even look like, woo, this could be a little bit of a challenge. But listen, I just pay attention now how Jonathan is thinking and what happened. All right, so here's verse 6, key verse of the day. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I want you to read this little phrase with me, will you? The, the third from the bottom. Perhaps. Ready? Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. One more time. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. One more time. Get this memorized. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Glory to God. Because nothing hinders God. I think King James uses the word restraint. There is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Now remember, everybody else is quaking in their boots. Everybody else in the army. Some of them have gone home. Some of them are hiding in caves. Some of them are sitting under pomegranate trees. And no doubt Saul is sulking at Samuel's words. But Jonathan, what does he do? He gets up. He knows they're outnumbers. He's not acting in stupidity. He, it's not that he's not paying attention to the facts. He knows they're outnumbered. He knows the entire army is uh, demoralized. He could have sat there too feeling sorry for himself. My dad took the glory for my, my big battle. No, he's not acting like that. He says, perhaps, perhaps he'll do it again, right? And he could have taken offense, but he chose to get up and move. So he's, he's thinking to himself, you know what? God is with me. Notice his phrase. He said to his armor bearer, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. David said something very similar when he was ready to come against Goliath. In fact, that was one of the first things he said to all of the guys around him, the, battle, the soldiers. He said, who does that big giant think? He is defying the armies of the living God. This uncircumcised Philistine. Well, what's that? That's talk about covenant, friends. Jonathan knew he was in covenant with the almighty God, and, and the Philistines weren't. It's, as, it's just as simple as that. <clears throat> and then, um, it could be, he says. You know, the what-ifs go on both sides, guys. It can always be, what if, what if I die? Or, what if we lose? Or, what if we can't? Or, what if God shows up? <laughs> what if? Perhaps the Lord will fight for me and give me victory over my enemy. So, friend, there's no limit to his power. He doesn't need a great big army. I think I gave you the message Bible for 1 Samuel 14, 6. It puts it like this. There's no rule that says God can only deliver by using a big army. 
No one can stop God from saving when he sets his mind to you. And you've got to know that God's will is victory. Whatever your situation is, whatever you're facing, God has already ordained the victory for you. Hallelujah. It's just our unbelief that hinders God. Now, you've all heard this phrase. Maybe you've said it to someone even this week. What were you thinking? Do you ever use that phrase? (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about it. What's Saul thinking right now? He might be thinking, how did I get myself into this situation? I never wanted to be king in the first place. Or he could have been thinking, it's not fair. It's just not fair. Samuel was the one who was late. I had to make that sacrifice. It's his fault. Or he could have been thinking, I'm losing all my men. They're leaving. They're forsaking. What a rotten bunch of men I have. Or he could have been thinking, my own son is trying to upstage me. Or let's talk about Jonathan. What was Jonathan thinking? Friends, so much depends on what we think. I hope you know that. We must think God's thoughts. So here's Jonathan thinking, my God has done it before. And he's probably remembering, he could be remembering a story in Judges chapter 3 about a certain judge named Shamgar who killed six hundred Philistines with nothing but a sharp stick. That's it. Because God was with him. He might have been thinking, hey, listen, I've got a sword. I mean, he was only one of two people in the whole army of Israel that had a sword. I've got a sword. I've got an armor bearer who's right beside me, right supporting me in everything I say and do. And listen, I've got the favor of God. And I'm in covenant with the eternal God. So come on, let's go. That's what he says in verse 6, right? He said to the armor bearer, let's go. Let's cross over to this outpost of these uncircumcised men because he understood he was in covenant. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I got myself lost. Let me find my way here. Praise God. Which verse did I get to? Okay, let's go to verse 7, right? Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. He's behind him. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. Ooh, it's good to have friends like that, isn't it? Somebody will say, I'm with you. Jonathan said, come on then. We're going to cross over towards them and let them see us. So he had a plan. We're going to let the Philistines see us. If they say to us, wait here. Wait until we come to you, then we will stay where we are and we won't go up. But... We have verse 10. But if they happen to say, come up to us, then we'll climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistines. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us, we'll teach you a lesson. And I'm sure a few more words were spoken. I mean, you know how it is the enemy can get so mouthy, intimidating, insulting. But Jonathan did not back away from the insult or the intimidation. In fact, he said, aha, I got my sign, I'm going, and God is with me. Right? So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after Me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. 
Oh, there's so much to say here. I mean, he doesn't say, into my hand. He's always thinking for God, about God's army. He's always about representing God. Hallelujah. And I want, can you just go back one verse there where he said, climb up after me. I mean, this is the word of Jesus. Jesus will always go before us. Always Jesus goes before us. He's the great champion, friends. He already won. All we got to do is follow him and walk in that victory. Okay, let's keep going. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The full, keep close to Jesus, friend. Right behind him. He didn't trail behind like a mile and see, well, well, let's just see what happens. No, he stood, he stayed right with him. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about a half an acre. Then... Panic struck the whole army. Now we're talking about the Philistines. Panic struck the entire Philistine army, those in the camp and the field, and those in the outposts and the raiding parties, and the ground began to shake. It was a panic sent by God. Now this is how NIV puts it. Just about every other translation says it was an earthquake. And that would be just like God to show up with an earthquake because that's what he does. He always shows up to fight on our behalf. Hallelujah. Um, Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin, they all saw the army melting away. And then Saul said to the men, muster the forces. Sue's left us. So they found out that Jonathan's gone. And skip, we're running out of time. Skip over to verse 19, 22, that's fine, 19. While Saul was talking, no, 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 let's keep going. Um, so verse 20, Saul and all of his men assembled and they went to battle. What? They finally got up. And it looks, guess what happens? The Hebrews who were, they had even, some of the Hebrews had even switched sides, guys. And they came back. What? It looks like our army could win. So we're going to switch sides now. Praise God, right? And uh, I got to be done here. So let's just jump over to verse 23. Well, here's, here's fun. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So there's a verse a little later that says all of a sudden they had 10,000 fighting on their half. Verse 23. So on the day, that day, that glorious day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on. And it'd be fun to read the rest of the chapter because Saul does some other stupid things and Jonathan comes out on top again. Listen, God is looking for saints like you and me, like Jonathan, who are willing to rise this hour and believe who he is because there's battles raging around us, friends, and he's already given us the victory. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks be unto God who causes us always to triumph in Christ. Amen. 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 Have yourself a blessed day. Perhaps, get that verse memorized, perhaps the Lord will work for us. Whew. Glory to God. Thank you for listening to this inspirational message. We trust that you were encouraged in your faith. For additional information or resources, please contact the church at 605-692-4616. 
You can email us at holylife at brookings.net or visit our website at holylifetabernacle.com. If you're in the Brookings area, please stop by to visit a service. We are located at 241 Mustang Pass, just off Main Avenue South. Our service times are Sundays at 10 a.m. and 6.30 p.m., also Wednesday nights at 7. God bless you.